I'll read Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 13. And I'll actually uh, start it by inserting a couple words that explain what the what is referring to. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. Has then the law that is good become death to me? Certainly not. But death, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you for the uh, benefit of the Apostle Paul to the church, and yet we know, Father, that he wrestled here uh, just as we do. And so we thank you, Lord, that he uh, chronicled his experience, uh, that it would be uh, to us this day uh, your word and your wisdom. We thank you now, Father. We pray that you would open our ears and open our minds, that we would understand then that we would be changed. We thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord, and we pray that we would serve you faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. And please be seated. <clears throat> I think I'll be, drink both of these glasses of water today. I... Uh, uh, I don't know how long ago I looked through my notes and I just can't find when I referenced it. And to me, everything is just like, you know, a few weeks ago. I don't know. But this could have been two years ago. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I shared with you the conversion experience of Charles Spurgeon. And we know, I think most everybody knows that Charles Spurgeon actually became a minister at 19. And I mean, he was extremely popular in his early 20s. By that time already, he was just such a good orator. And a, and a wonderful Christian man. And yet, in his youth, in his teen years, he was convicted of sin, and yet he did not know how to absolve himself of that guilt. And so he purposed to go to church after church after church until he became a Christian, until he basically knew how to get rid of sin. So he went to church after church after church, and he heard a lot of good sermons. But in none of those sermons was he shown how to become a Christian until one day 
a big snowstorm hit and he had actually had intended to go to a certain church and yet it was far away and on the way he just thought I can't make it to that church it's too far there's too much snow so he went to another one down this little side street and it was called a primitive Methodist church primitive Methodist chapel and I believe I shared with you what happened he went in and there were only like a dozen people there so they sit down and when it came time for the message the minister wasn't there because he must have been snowed in wherever he was. And so a man, a working man, a tradesman, got up and preached a message. And Charles Spurgeon says this was like the stupidest man. You know, he was uneducated. He really didn't know what to say. But yet he just kept saying the same thing over and over. And he was converted because he was looking at Charles Spurgeon and he says, young man, and he said, uh, you... How did he phrase it? He said, you look very miserable. And Spurgeon was shocked. He had never been addressed from the pulpit before. And yet he thought the guy is telling the truth. And so he just sat there. And then he said, you always will be miserable if you don't obey my text. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look to Jesus. He was saved. He's, that's what he'd been looking for. In all of his previous weeks of going to sermon after sermon, he'd heard all about how to be a good Christian, but he hadn't heard how to be a Christian. And so he became a Christian that day. He said God, God's love just flooded into his heart. So now he's a Christian. And what's that guy on the radio? Now you get to hear the rest of the story. Yeah, Art Bell. Is that him? No? Paul Harvey, that's right. Art Bell's the other guy. Okay, uh, but so five days have passed and he is more miserable now than he was before he went to the Primitive Methodist Chapel. Let me share with you what he wrote about that. When I first believed in Christ, I am not sure that I thought the devil was dead, but certainly I had a notion that he was so mortally wounded that he could not disturb me. I fondly dreamed that my sins would never sprout again. I was going to be perfect. I fully calculated on it. And lo, I found an intruder I had not reckoned upon, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So I went to that same primitive Methodist chapel where I first received peace with God through the simple preaching of the word. And the text happened to be, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? A verse we just read. There, I thought, that's the text for me. I had just got as far as that in the week. I knew I had put my trust in Christ. And I knew that when I sat in that house of prayer, my faith was simply and solely fixed on the atonement of the Redeemer. But I had a weight on my mind because I could not be as holy as I wanted to be. I could not live without sin. When I rose in the morning, I thought I would abstain from every hard word, from every evil thought and look. And I came up to that chapel groaning because when I would do good, evil was present with me. The minister began by saying, Paul was not a believer when he wrote this. Well, now I knew I was a believer and it seemed to me from the context that Paul must have been a believer. Now I'm sure of it, he writes later. The man went on to say, no child of God ever did feel any conflict within. So I took up my hat and left the chapel. <laughs> and I have very seldom attended such places since. 
they are very good for people who are unconverted to go to, but of very little use for children of God. That is my notion of Methodism. <laughs> so, Charles Spurgeon was a wonderful preacher, and within a week, he knew more than the Methodist ministers that he was sitting under, because he had the word and he had the proof of it in his own life experience. He'd only been a Christian a week, and yet he felt that power, the revenge of indwelling sin. And so I want to share with you a few. Now, there are, we see here two views of this text, right? We see the one version that the Methodist minister was propounding, and that was that this can't possibly be speaking of a Christian because no Christian ever felt like this. And then you have Spurgeon's own view. Oh, no, Paul is speaking of me. And if he's speaking of me, he must have been speaking of himself. Now, there's a third view, and that is kind of an odd modern view, but that is that people who, with too much time on their hands, I think, theorize that Paul is actually writing about kind of like a mythical any man, that even though this appears to be ultimately autobiographical, the, the word I appears 20 times in this text, that Paul was actually not really writing it about himself, his own experience. He'd really never experienced that. He was writing about other people. This is kind of an experience that other people have. And what's odd, though, is that if other people can have that experience, why can't Paul? You know, what's to distinguish between them? Well, of course he's an apostle. The apostles must have been above sin, right? Well, no. So it's just there are these various views. So now the view that uh, Spurgeon himself adopted that day when he heard it because it was him, it was his experience, was the, what is called the classical view. Augustine wrote of it, and then the, uh, the uh, reformers, uh, they basically held to it. And it is actually probably on the wane in our time because people are more adopting this Methodist minister's view. But this is in a book that I've read uh, by John Owen on indwelling sin in the believer, which I'm going to quote actually fairly liberally today. He begins his book by writing this. Many indeed are the contests about the principal scope of the apostle in this chapter and in what state the person is, under the law or under grace, whose condition he expresses therein. I shall not enter into that dispute, but take that for granted, which may be undeniably proved, namely, that it is the condition of a regenerate person with respect to the remaining power of indwelling sin, which is there proposed, and in the person of the apostle himself. So, why do people have trouble believing that Paul wrote this of his own experience? I think there are valid reasons right in the text that I read to you that would give any of us pause to believe that this is a Christian writing about his own experience. And let me give you some of them. Verse 14, Paul writes this. The law is spiritual. I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, how can Paul, as a Christian, describe himself as carnal because he accuses people of being carnal when he wrote to the Corinthians you are still carnal you are yet in your sin so see it is then good for us to pause and think how can Paul write this about himself listen to what he said about carnal people like in uh, another uh, 12 verses Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So there would appear to be a logical contradiction here. In verse 20, if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
He repeats that. It's in verse 17 and verse 20 verbatim. If I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who did, but sin that dwells in me. How can he say this? It's not my fault. Don't blame me. It's the sin that's in me. I didn't do that. That's what he says. And so you think, this is odd. This is odd the way he's writing. Verse 23, I see another law bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Again, if he's writing as a believer, he's saying, I have a law in my members bringing me into captivity to sin. But yet, what did he write to Timothy? He wrote, a man of God must be gentle, that they must come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. So see, he writes to Timothy that the Christian is freed from the captivity of sin. And yet here he's saying he's captive to sin. Verse 25, with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And let me rephrase this. Paul, in effect, says, with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's what he said. That's a simple statement that Paul said. With the flesh, I serve the law of sin. But in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he wrote, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So you see here why people are tempted to believe that Paul is not writing of himself, why he's not writing as a believer, that if he wrote it of himself, it was before he was a believer. And he's writing about the contest that he has within himself with the legal righteousness warring to take the upper hand over any thought of any gospel, any, any good news, any free grace. So it's no wonder that we are confused, and yet I believe as we go forward, you'll begin to see more and more why Paul wrote this way, why Romans 7 is written as stringently as it is, because I think it makes perfect sense, and we all identify with it, especially at points in our lives, and we'll talk about some of those. Now, what I want to ask is, uh, first, let's review both people in history, famous Christians, as well as people in the Bible who have perhaps experienced something similar to what Paul is writing about. And let me give you a few quotes. The first is the man who wrote Rock of Ages. His name is Toplady, Augustus Toplady. And he wrote this in his diary. It was December 31st, 1767, and he wrote this observation. Upon a review of the past year, I desire to confess that my unfaithfulness has been exceeding great, my sins still greater, God's mercies greater than both. My shortcomings and my misdoings, my unbelief and want of love would sink me into the lowest hell. Was not Jesus my righteousness and my redeemer? So now think about what he was doing. Here he is at a day, the last day of a year, and he's reflecting back on the year. Now, Many of us, when we do this, we reflect back on the wonderful things. You know, this went wonderfully, that went wonderfully. I did this, I did that. Aren't they wonderful? He did not. He was focusing on where he had fallen short, and he got a big list, and he's beating himself up with that list. This is Adoniram Judson's wife who wrote this. Now, if you're familiar with Adoniram Judson, he had three wives, not at the same time. Anne, Anne passed away. And then he married Sarah, and then Sarah passed away, and then he married a, 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 a lady who I think he was only, there were maybe three or four years before he passed away himself, but her name was Emily. I believe this was written of Anne. And uh, she wrote this as she's returning to the mission field, and I believe they only took one trip where they left the mission field. And she writes this. 
Now, she was actually, I mean, she was Adoniram Judson's wife, but she was also an incredible missionary in her own right. Uh, she served him well on the field. And for a year and a half when he was in prison in Burma, she had to go to the prison and feed him because in prisons in Burma, nobody feeds you. You better have family on the outside that's going to bring you stuff or else you die. That's the way they deal with it there. And so she had to take him food and water all the time. And then one day she shows up and he's gone. And now she has to go find the new prison that he's been taken to because they didn't send letters to loved ones as to they were moving your loved one from one prison to another. So they really made it hard on her. And this is what she wrote as she's leaving this visit back home. Oh, how I rejoice that I am out of the whirlpool, too gay, too trifling for a missionary's wife. That may be, but after all, gaiety is my lightest sin. It is my coldness of heart, my listlessness, my want of faith, my spiritual inefficiency and inertness, my love of self the inherent and everyday pampered sinfulness of my nature that makes me such a mere infant in the cause of Christ. Now, this is after she's been in the field for a while. Another man, as he's near death, writes to a friend. This man is James Inglis. He's the editor of a, of a I guess, a famous uh, uh, serial called Waymarks in the Wilderness. As I am brought to take a new view of the end, my life seems so made up of squandered opportunities and barren of results that it is at times very painful. But grace comes in to meet all, and he will be glorified in my humiliation also. Now, these are from history. I don't know that they exactly identify with what Paul is saying in Romans 7, but yet let's get some examples from Scripture of where people feel this way, of people feel that they're letting God down. All throughout Job, we know that Job argued with his friends, attempting to justify himself, that he was unworthy of the, of the extent to which he was being punished on this earth. And yet, God showed up, said only a couple sentences, and this is what Job said. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Now, God's not done with him yet. For two chapters, God lectures Job. He chews Job out. And this is what, in the end, Job says. These are his last words to the God that has just chewed him out. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, when he was called to be a prophet in Isaiah 6, 5, he saw the vision of God and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and then the angel takes the coal from the altar, touches his lips and says, your sins have been removed. And it strengthened him to be able to stand there and remain in God's presence. And then you also have Daniel's vision of the glorious man in Daniel 10, where Daniel says, no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me. When this glory appeared to him, it just made him weak in the knees. Now, I want to ask you a question. And I think it's a good question to ask. It's not in the text, but it's something we really should think about. Paul wrote these words. But when did he experience these words of which he's writing? When did he feel this? And I think there are various points in a Christian's life where they can feel this poignantly, our sin and our failure before God to serve him as we ought. And so I just want you to think about that. When is it that Paul likely uh, experienced this? And I think there are several possibilities. 
uh, one is right here, right as he's writing this letter to the Romans, because he is explaining the sweep of God's plan. And he begins with Romans 1, with, with everyone just buried in sin. And, and he goes on and he, and he addresses the justification that we experience. And then he's here, hip deep in sanctification, before he goes on to glorification. So sanctification would be a likely time where Paul is reminded of himself, his own sin, his own past, his own indwelling sin that is a constant snare to him. Remember, he spoke about that weakness that he had, that thorn in the flesh. Who knows what that was? But it was serious. I read once that someone thought it was nearsightedness. I don't think so. I don't think it was that petty. He had a problem. I mean, it was spiritual. And he wanted God to take it from him, but he didn't. It could have been that. Now, it also could have been in, when he's writing in, to the Corinthians in his second letter, I think it's chapter 5, he refers to a man being caught up into the third heaven. He said, I will not boast of myself. I will boast of that man. Now, most people think he's actually talking about himself, but he won't say it happened to him because he doesn't want to be seen as boasting. But yet there was this man that he spoke of who's being caught up into the third heaven and hearing inexpressible things. So then what a come down it would be to come back to this earth and to again experience the tug of the sinful flesh after you have been in the presence of God, after you've been caught up into the third heaven. So now, I don't know when it was, but I think it is wise for us to, re to realize that it must have been. If Paul wrote this, if it's autobiographical, if it's, exp it's explaining his own, his own experience, it happened to him at some point. And he is sharing with us exactly what happened to him, and it is so helpful to us. Because Charles Spurgeon was in the midst of people who were denying the very reality they were living. And he'd been a Christian for all of five days. And he knew this was real. He knew the sin was still in him and it frustrated him. And he wanted to, it to be over, but he was getting the sinking suspicion that it wasn't going to be, nor was it. Now, let's get back to our text. I want to take you to a couple of key phrases and then actually we'll dig quite deeply into the text. But the key phrases I want to share with you come in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Four times he uses the word law in these two verses. And so in verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God. And that law is contrasted with this other law in his members that wars against the law of my mind. So see, he's equating the law of God with the law of his mind, and yet it's bringing him into captivity to the law of sin. So he's got this law of God at work in him, and he's got this law of sin at work in him. Both are at work. So what he's admitting to is that he has two natures warring inside of him. Who else do we know that has two natures inside of him? Anybody can say it said it very silently, Jesus. Jesus has two natures in him. But Jesus' natures aren't at war with one another. Now, the catechism says that Jesus' natures are separate. They are not commingled. He has his divine nature and he has his human nature, but they coexist in peace. Jesus is at peace with himself. He's not a schizo. 
you know, in our culture, we call people that have split personality disorders, they're, they're schizo. You know, they are crazy. Jesus is not. He's at peace with these two natures. We Christians, though, we can be crazy, can't we? I mean, Charles Spurgeon, when he went to that church that second time, he wanted help. I need help. I'm frustrated. I'm so burdened with this sin. I want free of it. And so we Christians have these two natures within us, but they are at war. And they sometimes make our lives miserable. And that doesn't end. We continue to have that war all of our days. Now these two natures, and let me share with you, let me read what our text was. And again, I'll do this. When I'm talking about the, the, the fallen nature, the evil nature that is still within us, I'll go like this. It's pulling you down. It's dragging you away. When, and when I speak of the, the, the elevated nature, the redeemed nature, I'll do this. And it's, they're all over the place. Listen to this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. So see, it's, it's the doing that his mind doesn't understand. The fallen being judged by the redeemed. What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, see the hate's a good thing. I hate that. What I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that is in me, in my flesh. Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So you can see he's describing these two entrenched camps within him and they fight against one another and it's driving him mad. But all throughout the rest of his letters, you'll see he, he warns you, he educates you, he, he teaches us how we're to deal with this reality. But here he's letting loose with the frustration that that can cause in us. And so he wants you to know that he feels it and he feels for you. We all should feel for one another. We Christians have it rough because of this wonderful redeemed nature within us that is like a beautiful crystal spring, but no sooner does it spring up from our heart than it's flooded with this polluted, yucky river that flows down from the awful factories that are upstream of our wonderful redeemed heart. And so, what I want to talk to you about more, though, is how we try to deal with this. What's the reality? How do we, how do we uh, handle this reality? It's important. It's very important. This is probably one of the most important things we must wrestle with as believers. So now, John Owen quote, and I'll just say quote from now on because I have about another eight or nine of his quotes. Uh, John Owen says this, He shall find the stream to be strong who swims against it though he who rolls along with it be insensible to it. So see, as an unbeliever, we're just merrily on the path, the wide path that leads to hell. And yet, we're in the flow. We're insensible to the fact that we're even in a stream. 
But when we turn to go against that flow, when we fight the pull of the flesh that's trying to make us sin, then you know you're in a river. And I think I shared with you once before that I used to swim in the Mississippi River when I was in the service. Uh, you only do that a couple times. I mean, it's, it's a strong, powerful... You swim out and it's like, wait, wait a minute. I'm like 100 feet from the bank where I came in now. I, I'm getting out. But it is such a powerful river. You feel it immediately as soon as you go in. It, it pulls your feet out from under you. And so that is the river of sin that we are in the midst of as believers. And we can grow insensible to it if we are not opposing sin in our members. And so Paul lectures us constantly about not doing that. You can't indulge in sin as a believer. You do not have that luxury. You must maintain your sensitivity to sin. It's kind of like this. You know the story about the, you know, when I was a kid, it was uphill both ways to school. As a Christian, it is. It's constantly uphill with heavy snow. When I was a kid, I used to love to bicycle. And where I grew up in Ohio, it was fairly flat, but, you know, you'd hit hills at times. And it was always so much fun. You've been pedaling. It's a hot summer day. You've been going for miles. Now you hit this hill. Woo! You know, you can just coast down the hill. There is no coasting in the Christian life. You cannot coast. You're not even on a level uh, field. You're constantly, constantly having to climb. There is no respite for the Christian. And so those that want it, those that insist upon it, mm-hmm. They're backsliding very quickly. You just can't get there from here. You've got to keep climbing. Now, I want to share with you some of the aspects of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is your enemy. It is your mortal enemy. It lives within you, and you need to know it. In verses 17 and 20, Paul says, it dwells in me. He doesn't like the fact that it dwells in him. He wished he could change that, but he can't. This John Owen quote, the soul is its home, there it dwells. It is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do and in the worst. It opposes you. Every good thought you have, it opposes. It is your enemy and it is tireless. It's like a little terminator that lives within you that tries to kill every good thought, every selfless thought that you have. And if you let it do that, it will rule you. It will ruin your days. When I was a kid, I remember seeing the movie The Blob. Now, this, there was a remake, and the new movie The Blob didn't remind me of the old movie The Blob. In the old movie The Blob, the nice thing was that it moved so slowly. In the new movie, it like jumps everywhere. It's weird. But in the old one, it's huge because as it eats people, it gets bigger. But these people are sitting in the movie theater, or they're like in an office room, and suddenly it starts feeding through the vent very quietly. And see, that's indwelling sin. It's coming after you. You don't know it. You think you're safe. But it's coming after you. It always is. It's like the blob. It's going to get you, and you have to keep looking. The only way to beat the blob was to run from it until they found out they could freeze it in the end. But until then, (laughs) until then, you ran. You ran from the blob. That's the only way to get away. So see, you can't run from what you don't see, and so you have to look for it. Indwelling sin is the same way. You have to look for it. Where is it now? It's not gone. It's just hiding from you. And see, it's hiding in your blind spots. We all have blind spots. We all think we're wonderful, but that's where it's hiding. It's hunting, hiding in that blind spot in which you think you're wonderful. In verse 21, Paul says, Evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. John Owen says, 
There are many outward temptations and provocations that befall men, which excite them and stir them up to evil. But they do, as it were, open the vessel and let out what is laid up and stored in it. The root of all these is in the heart. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. Jesus said this in Luke 6:45. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, as believers, we might be quick to believe we are good men. But I'm here to tell you, no, you're not. See, because you have the evil man and the good man in you. And so what flows out of your mouth could be good or evil based on which you are allowing to rule you. If you're walking in the spirit, sure, your good man is going to prevail. But if you are walking in the flesh today, then your evil man will prevail. So that's why the evil man, the evil will always come out. But for the good man, the fallen man that is good, he still has to constantly be walking in the spirit in order to make sure that what's flowing from his mouth are good things, edifying things. That's why Paul is always correcting people, right? Because they're not yet learning how to do that. They're not disciplined as he was in buffeting his body to make it his slave and make it toe the line in terms of walking the law of the spirit. Another thing too, and I, I tell you, I know you do this. I, I know you do this. I did this so often and I still do it. You think this. Oh, it's, it's so clear. John Owen has such great quotes. The more men sin, the more they are inclined to sin. It is from the deceitfulness of this law of sin that men persuade themselves that by this or that particular sin, they shall so satisfy their lusts that they shall need sin no more. But every sin fortifies the habit of sinning. It is an evil treasure that increases by doing evil. Think of it like this. In your heart, you've got two little treasure chests. You've got a good treasure chest and an evil treasure chest. And anytime you spend anything out of those treasure chests, it's like an investment. You get more coming back in. You spend out of your evil treasure chest, you get double back. You spend out of your good treasure, treasure chest, you get double back. So you see, that's what God wants you to do, though. We've got to stop spending from our evil treasure chest in our heart. Because the more you spend from that, the more you get back. It just keeps coming back to you. You can't get rid of it. Do you remember that movie where they had to spend the money in order to get the money? I forget what it was, but it was like they had to spend, uh, like, I don't know, $100 million within a week or something. It's hard to spend that much money in a week. And in the end, he, he, defeated, he was defeated because he like, got a deposit back. It's like, you know, he's, he's broke. He spent $100 million and he has no assets to show for it. But in the end, he gets handed like a deposit check that he put down on something. And so, see, that's just it, you know. The more we spend, the more we will get. It's not like that. We, we, we will have assets to show for everything that we've spent from either of these treasure chests. You can't avoid that. So what you want to do is spend from the good treasure chest. And, and here I already gave you the answer to this one, but where is this evil treasure stored? Now, when you read Paul, uh, and, and I think this is very, very telling. When I was doing this earlier, the, 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 uh, the evil and, the, and the, the good, the redeemed. Practically everything up here is reflective. Listen to these words. I do not understand. I will to do that. I hate. Uh, I will not to do. I agree with the law. That is in me. Um, but down here, this is what it says. 
I am doing, that I do, I do not practice, sin dwells in me. These are all like action words. He's pointing at the body as being his enemy in fulfilling these action words that he doesn't want fulfilled. Yet his mind, his intellect, his, his redeemed will is the thing that is trying to exert control over this and is failing to do so. But yet, what's interesting to me is that with the uh, reformers and with the Puritans, they tend to speak of the heart as being this treasure chest. Now, Jesus called it that too, but Paul here calls it uh, the mind. He appears to call it the mind to me. And yet, it's still a metaphor for what's going on, right? Because where it is, is it in you? It's not in your physical heart. It's not in your physical brain, right? It's in your spirit. And so you have this war going on with you in your spirit. This evil treasure is in the heart. There it is laid up. There it is kept in safety. All the men in the world, all the angels in heaven, cannot dispossess a man of this treasure. It is so safely stored in the heart. Here dwells our enemy, where it maintains a rebellion against God all our days. It is like an enemy in war whose strength and power lie not only in his numbers and force of men in arms, but in the unconquerable forts that he does possess. And see, that is a fort in you that will never be defeated in this lifetime, not totally. It will always be there sending out forces into your life attempting to destroy the good that is in you. That's why you must keep a constant watch. You must do as Paul does, buffet his body to make it a slave control the body. Don't indulge in the sins thinking that it weakens it because it's like throwing fuel on fire. There is no way for us to pursue sin in its unsearchable habitation but by being endless in our pursuit. Let us reckon that there is no way to have our work done but by our always doing it. Nothing will give security but perpetual watchfulness. It is impossible we should in this case be too doubtful, suspicious, or watchful. The heart has a thousand wiles and deceits, and if we are in the least off from our watch, we may be sure to be surprised. And so, in other words, we must always fight. There is no respite. There is respite, of course. We have it here at church, and yet we are only here rearming. We are only here in the midst of safety and plenty, but even here, the enemy can attack because we can easily be convinced that we are wonderful here, can't we? I mean, I'm not trying to do it, but yet we can do it. Many churches, that's what their goal in life is, to make you feel wonderful and send you back home. I feel wonderful today. I, I'm, this has really been helpful today. I'm going to come back next week. And so see, churches fall into that trap. They fall into that trap of just trying to make you feel good about whatever it is that you're in the middle of. But you could be in the middle of sin. We don't want you feeling good about yourself if you're in the middle of sin. So that's why we try to bring the word to bear in your life. And if you don't like that, it's probably that sin has a greater foothold in you right now than you're comfortable with. And so hopefully that is the message that is conveyed every Sunday here as we purely try to bring you the word and try to worship God uh, simultaneously. We try to, to edify the church by making it more pure. The soul had rather do anything. Now, we all know this to be true. The soul had rather do anything, embrace any diversion, though it wound itself thereby, than vigorously apply itself unto that which in the inward man it breathes after. It is so hard to pray, isn't it? It's so hard to discipline ourselves to do the work that our, 
our inward man wants us to do. I remember reading once, um, a man was writing and he said, it's so much easier to just pop in a movie. And then that's two hours, that's 90 minutes to two hours of your life. And yet 10 minutes of prayer is so long, so long. You know, downtown we're trying to have these men's meeting where we're supposed to do 10 minutes of study, 20 minutes of prayer. We haven't come close yet. First week, I had 20 minutes of talking, 10 minutes of prayer. Second time, Gary had probably 20 minutes of talking, 10 minutes of prayer. This time, it was Phil with 20 minutes of talking. We've all got to learn to shut up in the study more so that we can get to the prayer more. We said we'd do it, but we just haven't been able to accomplish it, and we've all failed. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't, we shouldn't capitulate. We shouldn't give up. We want the 10 to be the study, the 20 to be the prayer, the 30 to be the fellowship. We're shooting for that. So far, it's 20, 10, 30. We're going for 10, 20, 30. So now, what should motivate us to fight against indwelling sin? And uh, there's a John Owen quote, but I actually would like to read to you from uh, what I read a little bit ago, not to us, but just myself, but in Colossians. I read uh, Colossians 3, and to me, this is a proper motivation to us to fight this battle. Starting at 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then I'll stop right there. Now, the last verse I want to close with, though, from our text is in Romans uh, 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, when you get to this, after having read from 13 on, and you get to this point, and you hear Paul say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is easy to imagine that this is a cry of despair, that he is despairing over what he has just shared. But I don't believe it is a cry of despair. There is some frustration in this, but I believe this question is rhetorical. And the purpose of a rhetorical question is that he wants to share the answer. So see, I believe verse 24 is only the setup for verse 25. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul is fully aware of the battle that's being raged within him. And yet I believe, too, that uh, probably more than most men, he managed that battle well. He overcame the enemy within his heart. And so when we read of him, and even like this last verse, uh, 25b, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, he's not saying that that's 100%. He's saying that that is what that inner evil man will try to do. But Paul doesn't let him. So what he's saying here often are the ideals. It's the ideal of the 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 inner man that is redeemed and the inner man that is fallen. They war with one another. And he gives pure statements from each of their perspectives. But, but when he says, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, he's not saying that his, he's allowing his flesh to do that. Oh, no, he fights it. But he knows it wants to. It has that longing. 
and yet he must rule over it. Just like God told Cain. Remember what God told Cain. It is in you, but you must master it. I mean, right there, right at the garden, God told us the answer to the question of how to deal with indwelling sin because it was in Cain, it was, it's in everybody. We must war against it, believer or unbeliever. He's telling Cain, and Cain was most likely an unbeliever and remained one. And yet, he chose to not war against the flesh. He chose to embrace the flesh. So now, yes, we live in constant tension between our old and new natures, and yes, they war within us, and we must exercise vigilance. But, as was mentioned earlier in the prayer, the battle has been won by Christ already. Amen. And so we will enjoy freedom from this evil man that is constantly trying to conquer us now. We are victorious. I I, I almost hesitate to say this, but it's like the Ron Paul of our heart will win. (laughs) You know, everybody's saying, oh, he can't win. He can't win. He can't win. Well, he's won. You know, God has won in our heart. We might want Ron Paul to win in our election. Maybe he will. But we know that this, this minority redeemed man within us that so wants to dominate that indwelling sin, that indwelling sin will die. It will go down to destruction. And so that redeemed man will live to prevail over uh, all time in us. And so the main thing, too, is to remember that when we all look at one another. I mean, it's just we are so hard on ourselves. We're so hard on one another. Let's all realize that we are a work in progress. We all have that evil little man in us that wants leave a little women, I guess, for the women. But, but, but that wants out, that wants to control us, that wants to dominate us. And so let's help one another uh, in our fight. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that Paul did write these words and so clearly portrayed the, the uh, vigilante action of indwelling sin in our hearts. It will not win. And yet, Father, we are so frustrated by it in the flesh. So we pray, Father, that you would uh, strengthen us, that you would grant us a, a, a hope in the future that one day we will be fully cleansed of sin. We thank you, Father, for all of your many blessings and for your presence with us now and always. We thank you for that deposit of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, fighting this battle on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. So what is the song that we will sing? I didn't have any idea as to what to recommend to Gary to have us sing. Oh, I like it. (laughs) Psalm 130, from depths of woe, let's stand and sing.